Hey friends, on Plain Spoken, uh, I get to talk with a lot of really interesting people, and some of them I've known for a long time, some of them for, you know, it's our first time talking, really. Uh, the person I'm visiting with today, I've spoken with a couple of times. I actually saw her at the summit, which was an event that was hosted in the Heartland Annual Conference uh, when we were just a TCAT back in the day, and um, I was really impressed. I'd known who she was, I'd seen her face and her name everywhere, uh, but I, I, you know, there's some people, you just don't know how they get where they get and if they really are that gifted and talented. Uh, Angela Pleasance is uh, a gifted and talented woman. Instantly, as soon as I spoke to her, I knew that she and I were on the same wavelength. I've been wanting to get her uh, on the Plain Spoken podcast for some time because uh, I think that she has a background and a personal history and insight that is of great use to the Global Methodist Church. I think she is, we're very blessed to have her in leadership. And so what I want to do is I, I want to read just a brief bio so you understand who she is, and then I, I'm going to talk to her for a little bit, but I've also made clear to her uh, she doesn't have to go my direction. She has a good sense for what the denomination needs to hear. And so even if you're not a, a Global Methodist in this time, we're going to be talking about themes that have to do with trauma and healing and how it is that churches in particular, people walking in the footsteps of, of Jesus, can and should deal with uh, those dark things that people usually don't know how to talk about without getting really nasty. And and we're hoping that that through this conversation, we can minister to a lot of people who've been damaged in the past and paint a portrait for how it is that, that they don't have to be and how healing and walking in rightness, righteousness essentially can be done even while acknowledging uh, the hurt and harm done before. So here's here's a bio about Angela, and then I'll, I'll bring her on uh, screen. Reverend Angela A. Pleasance serves currently as the Director of Clergy Church Relations with the Global Methodist Church. Angela is a graduate of North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, completing her Bachelor of Science in Business Administration and Marketing, and a graduate of Duke Divinity School with a master's in divinity. Currently, she is studying at Western Biblical, not Western, Wesley Biblical Seminary, Doctor of Ministry program. She served 24 years as a pastor in the United Methodist Church across the Western North Carolina Annual Conference. For, 20, for four of the 24 years, she served as a district superintendent of the Catawba Valley District. Don't correct me on how I said that. She also served on various conference committees, including the Board of Ordained Ministry, the United Methodist Foundation Board of Directors, and Cabinet Representative to the General Council on Finance and Administration, as well as the Chair of the Board of Elders. She's been all over the place, guys. She has been a delegate to general and jurisdictional conferences. She has also served as a chaplain, and this is the particular—I mean, it's all interesting, but this is, this is where I knew that I would really enjoy her. Uh, a chaplain to various police agencies across North Carolina and the United States Secret Service. And she currently serves as a senior chaplain with the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department. She serves as a crisis response director of Back the Blue in North Carolina. So there's a lot more about her, but that's just a brief bio that we were able to put together on her. Um, so at this time, uh, Angela, you've been sitting patiently letting me uh, talk about you without talking back to me. Uh how how are you? Thank you so much for joining me today. Everybody can see what you look like. I'm sure everybody knows uh, your face at this point. You've been all over GMC stuff for uh, heck a year now. Um, you're joining me from home this morning, and uh, uh, are you ready for this, sister? I think I am, but you actually pronounced it correct. It is Catawba. Catawba. Oh, yes. I assume so. that's a Native American word from a tribe that used to 
live there, but. Exactly. Yes. Okay. And it, it encompassed uh, five counties uh, in that region of, of North Carolina, which I still live in that particular area uh, with 166 churches that I had to oversee. Fun. Yeah. you. Yeah. There are a lot of people like me who just barely fit into the UMC to begin with and then pretty eagerly and readily and ably got out. There are other people who are just really high up and saw the UMC from the inside from a lot of different angles, and that mm-hmm. you're you're one of them. Um, so you were you were in the United Methodist Church as an elder or clergy in some capacity for 24 years. Correct. June of 2024, I will be hitting 25 years as a clergy, but 24 of those was in the United Methodist Church. One uh, that yeah. I, I've been in ministry for a decade and I already feel like, oh man, uh, I've been through so much. I can't imagine 25 years. Yeah. Um, before we got into the issues that you and I both care about, that was that was a professional um, CV on you and uh, we're going to get into all of that. But I've, I've wondered at you personally, we've, we've talked about a lot of things outside of us, but I actually have no idea where you come from or uh, what what cultures you grew up around, what, what things inform you as a person. So what's important to know about you uh, on a personal level and, and where your, your origin story? Yeah, so I'm originally, I live in North Carolina, uh, originally from here. Um, I've been living in Charlotte now for, goodness, I think maybe 10 years or more, maybe a little longer, uh, or in the area of Charlotte. And But I grew up was born in Greensboro. So my mom's family originally were from the Ohio area, moved to the Appalachians here in North Carolina, uh, grew up there. So she grew up there. Granddaddy was primitive Baptist and they became missionary Baptist. Yeah. That's as, that is as Baptist as you get. (laughs) Um, and then became missionary Baptist, which there's a church mountain view, uh, missionary Baptist church in Rhonda, North Carolina, which is the foothills that my family founded. And my cousin is the pastor there to this day. Mm. We have our family reunions there every year. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I was, actually baptized in a Baptist church um, and by uh, my one of my aunt's uh, pastors. But yes, and then my dad's side of the family, originally from the Richmond, Virginia area, and it, part the, there was a split in the family, a long story on that, but the it was two brothers, a little kind of scuffle came about, one stayed in Richmond, the other moved here to the North Carolinas, added an S to the name. The other side of the family don't have an S. So ah. <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, it was yeah. that much of a divide between yeah. the two brothers. And so that's how my dad ended up here. And um, and they were from a long line of Methodists. So and then oh, when okay. my mom Yes. And yeah, so, so it was a Baptist Methodist marriage from the beginning. Exactly. And that was a, that used to be a bigger deal than it is today. It, it was a big deal because even the and with my parents' generation, the wife follows where the husband go. I mean, mm-hmm. that was just a given for that generation of people. Mm-hmm. And so she became Methodist, but always had that Baptist bent. So it was interesting growing up in that kind of home because we could not have playing cards in the house. Um, oh. it, it, it was very it was like that kind of. Yeah. Upbringing. OK. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, you were familiar with some of that real deal stuff from the early 20th century. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You, you know a version of Methodism slash Baptist American Christianity that actually required a good deal of 
self-denial and countercultural behavior. Yes. <laughs> yes. Cool. Exactly. So were, yeah. were your folks part of uh, the predecessor denomination to the United Methodist Church? Yes. Okay. That, and and I, that's where I learned a lot about the central jurisdiction through my parents and grandparents, because that's what they lived through, um, through the, the, when in 1939, when the central jurisdiction was formed mm-hmm. to, um, where the blacks had to worship. And she would tell stories about how they would go up to Lenore here in North Carolina. It was Lenore, North Carolina, where they had their conference. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, but the one thing that I always heard from and when I was in seminary, I did a paper on that for one of my seminar classes mm-hmm. because it was so fascinating. But the one thing that they um, positives that, that came out of that was development of leadership in the local churches, right. the leadership around the episcopacy, the leadership around pastors and and to be able to to see that because it's very important in most ethnic minority communities to be able to see people that look like us mm-hmm. in that leadership capacity. I know it was a huge imprint on my life growing up uh, to see the older women in the church and their strong faith and my mom's faith. And that's what helped me to grow in my process. Yeah, for people so. listening who might not know the history, and you you briefly mm-hmm. alluded to it, the the United Methodist Church and its predecessor denomination as well had not just annual conferences, but uh, jurisdictional conferences were the mid-level between the general conference and the annual conference. So there were four, five, six um, uh, white jurisdictional conferences but this mm-hmm. was in the days of Jim Crow South and segregation, and so the the central conference was made for black Methodist churches to not—it it was both white people wanting separation from black people, but there's mm-hmm. also this, this other part of segregation that people now are starting to talk about a little bit, but um, mm-hmm. the, the notion is that, that there were actually some good things that came out of—and this is what I heard you saying as well— um, whenever black people there were not in the minority dominated by w- white folks in every setting, but they could yeah. actually be in the majority in some setting and mm-hmm. and work on on themselves and leadership building is what you were talking about. But um, mm-hmm. I interviewed folks here locally from who'd worked in what was called the Lincoln School, which was the segregated black school here. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they remembered was um, how wonderful it was for, to learn from intelligent black teachers. And um, mm-hmm. to have, and whenever integration took place, a lot of those black teachers had to get out of there because now the white teachers uh, took over, and that that kind of um, safe black space was taken away. And that's yes. one of the things that is recurring in society today, where a lot of black voices are saying, um, "We need to create black only spaces where where we can uh, once again focus on ourselves. So it's really interesting, the kind of resegregation or self-segregation that, that we're seeing in America in a civic Mm. sense as well, but also, uh, and we may circle back around to this later or not, the global Methodist church is wanting Mm. to be a global church for all people. But Mm -hmm. then does that mean that we all just have to meld together? Or does that mean that we create separate spaces for different nationalities or ethnicities or cultures um, so this is not a conversation that has gone away. In fact, it's, we would probably be wise to look back to this era that your parents came out of for mm-hmm. what was good and what might be used again, and then what, no, what is just racist and cannot continue into the future. Um, Correct. So, yes. yeah, I don't know. I don't know what kind of conversations are even going to be had out in the open about that, but I'm personally interested in that because I grew up with the colorblind vision where a lot of these 
ethnic and cultural distinctions really don't matter, and they separate us, and, and that's illegitimate in the household of God, so we just need to come together. But I found a lot of, not just white people, but non-white people who were threatened by that vision and saying, mm, you know, we, we should be able to group like with like, otherwise, you know, some really bad things can happen. So I don't have any mm-hmm. wisdom there. I'm just kind of listening at this point, uh, but I, I think I understand what's at play. But I mean, as I understand it, there's been conversation around forming something similar in the GMC where uh, uh, there can be different cultural or ethnic groups that are not necessarily thrown in with the rest of us, but have their own self-governance. I don't know if if that's public or if I've even understood that correctly. We don't have to talk about that, but um, I don't think it's something that we can just say, oh, that's in the past. We don't have to worry about that anymore. But I've already talked over you long enough. You were giving us your history (laughs) Uh, with your parents, where they came from, how you found yourself in the United Methodist Church growing up. So mm-hmm. um, did you have siblings or were you a, a princess growing up? I, I, well, maybe a little both. Okay. I was the youngest. Oh, yeah. You're the baby. Okay. <laughs> I was an, and a daddy's girl. So I had him wrapped around my finger. Oh, okay. and, and so my, because there was a big gap between um, my older sisters and myself, I sort of grew up like an only child once they were older and out of the home. Uh, it was just me there. And so it was probably a little combination of, of both there, but, um, but yeah, and even now as adults, uh, I'm very close. My brother passed away five years ago. Mm-hmm. And so it's just me and my sisters now. I'm very close with them. We, um, still do our vacations together and, and, uh, things like that. But when, when I was younger, they didn't want me around. I was like, Oh, you, she's a baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to go do our own thing. You just go over there. Um, I was one of those latchkey kids when mm. I came home from school and when my sisters were already out of the house, married and doing their thing, I would just come in and, and also very much a nerd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I would come in, lock the door until my parents got home from work and I would just read and do things to entertain myself. I'm a Gen X. And I think most of us grew up like that. Um, and we're also what I call the forgotten generation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People always forget to include Gen X and everything, mm-hmm. which was kind of like that growing up also. So we just learned how to be self-productive because we had to. What year uh, were so you born, Angela? 68. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I was so born in the- 84. You were at the, the front end of Gen X. I was at the back end of Gen X. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 68. Okay. So you were born during the bad old days and then you got to see that era of peace in the seventies and eighties. Exactly. In North Carolina. Yeah. I don't know as much about North Carolina. I've been re- reporting on North Carolina the last couple of weeks. I don't know if you've seen that, but I, I talked about Bishop Carter in the United Methodist church. He issued an edict as to how it is that disaffiliated churches are and are not to act. And then uh, they, they had their vote, their final disaffiliation vote. And I, I, brought attention to that. Seemed like kind of a hostile context in the denomination, but uh, it sounds to me like your upbringing in North Carolina was nice. Uh, You had a good family growing up. It it really was uh, a great family. Uh, I mean, you know, typical family where we have little things that pop up here and there, but overall it was a very great family, Um, good Christian family. I, as I said, I learned prayer and faith from my mom, my dad. I take after my dad on the introvert side. He he was in the army for many years, came out and then started his own business. Um, very quiet man, and but full of a lot of wisdom. And so I would always enjoy just during the summers, he would take me out and we would go blackberry picking. 
um, so that was always a, a highlight when I got to spend some time with him. And um, I was not as close to my mom as I was my dad. I did not become close to her until the later years. Mm-hmm. Uh, she passed away last year. Mm-hmm. But after my dad passed away, uh, that's when I started to become closer to my mom. And so I can appreciate those years that I had with her before she passed away last year, because that gave me an opportunity to to bond with her that I never did because I was always with my dad. So it's a it's yeah. a wonderful you know, we live in an age of uh, great falling apart. A lot of families. I mean, it's I think it's really more normal nowadays to have families that have fallen apart rather than mm-hmm. have stuck together. So it's it's always a pleasure to talk to somebody who. Hey, I got along with both of my parents before they died, and I like yeah. all my siblings, yeah. and uh, that's that's increasingly yeah. rare. Um, it, it, it is, and and I think I, the funny part, looking back now, I never knew that my parents argue. I, I would always say, "Oh, they never argue." Well, they did. They just didn't do it in front of right. us. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. Um, yeah. So you you grew up in the Methodist movement in the Methodist Church. You were there. I'm assuming you you were always close to the church. Am I right to think that? I was. I started teaching Sunday school at the age of 16. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> to the adult class. Did you really? Yeah. You taught adults at, as a 16-year-old and I they made did. room I for think you. They, I think they just put up with me, but uh, <laughs> but that experience was, wow. it was pretty tremendous. Yeah. So is yeah. that where you started really uh, feeling the, the interest in ordained pastoral ministry? Funny you asked that question. So it was, it was not until college when I actually, I call it my Isaiah moment, when when Isaiah was in a temple on the Lord's day and mm-hmm. saw him high and lifted up and he came to himself in the midst of that holiness. And he said, whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips. Yeah. And it was my senior year in college. Well, I had gra- just graduated from my senior year in college, undergrad. And that's when I had that moment where and I just, I gave my life to Christ, but I can appreciate being raised in the church because that helped me to get to that place, to mm-hmm. realize it's not about just attending. It's not even about just, just because I teach Sunday school or I serve on committees as a young adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was this awakening that I had to have of the sinful state of who I am before Christ. Mm-hmm. And so with that said, the day that I, and it was October the 25th, 1990, the day that I gave my life to Christ in that moment was also when I heard the call upon my life into ministry. Mm. God works with me through visions. And that evening he showed me a vision that I was pastoring and leading a group of people that were various um, ethnicities. And and I, I remember waking up out of that dream and I said, what in the world just happened to me? And Mm -hmm. the reason why it was a struggle, I did not respond right away because remember, even though we were Methodists, there was that Baptist influence in our life. And I was always told women cannot be, that you can't do this. Um, So I stayed quiet. I didn't tell my family Mm -hmm. about that. I really struggled. I had just graduated from college. I was working at at a university, Winston-Salem State University. And really just having a hard time going back. I became a certified lay speaker. I said, okay, I can do that. I'll be safe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, it just would not, that pressure kept coming against me. Mm-hmm. And the chief of security on the campus where I worked, he said, I need to introduce you to someone. He knew I was struggling in this call to ministry. And this person ended Wait, up the being- The chief a- of security? Yes, he would come by my office uh, at the, when I, where I worked at Winston-Salem State. And we just struck up a friendship. Okay. And so, yeah. How and interesting. 
I don't know many people who have gotten uh, 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 spiritual advice and direction from security guards. That's what uh, I know. Uh, Isn't that something? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> keep going. So he introduced me to Arnetta Beverly. Um, she was she was in law enforcement, left law enforcement, became a um, a pastor here in Western North Carolina Conference. Eventually, she became a district superintendent, and uh, one time was an Episcopal candidate. But he introduced me to her and she took me under her wing and began to counsel with me and became my mentor. So six years down the road, I finally stopped running and I said yes, but the hurdle was going to be telling my mom and dad. My dad would have been, he was okay. It was my mom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The fear and trepidation because of, yeah. Yeah. And, um, And she didn't accept it at first, but the first time she heard me preached, she said, it's in you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she came to, to accept that. So I start. I entered seminary in 96. Okay. So, yeah. So you went to seminary at, at Duke before yes. they were having uh, worship to the queer God, I assume. Ooh. And yes. <laughs> uh, uh, you graduated from there and went into uh, ministry in Western North Carolina. Was there a point in Western North Carolina where um, radical left didn't have uh, dominance or w- was it always dominant and you learned how to operate under the radar? One thing I can say about Western North Carolina, and I think this is um, what I'm seeing now. I think this is why it's so difficult. Western North Carolina has always had a good, but we have always been able to work together. Even our delegation, when I was a delegate to general conferences, our delegation was always very balanced. We had centrists, we had traditionalists, we had uh, progressives, and it it was always that way. Um, work, which, by the way, I want to go back to something real quick before yeah, I finish. Yeah. Um, the vision that I had in 90, didn't understand it then, saw it in fruition throughout my 24 years of ministry. Every appointment I had was a cross-racial, cross-cultural appointment. Uh, And there was also several years where uh, I did teachings on these type of ministries to various ethnicities. So so that's one of my heartbeat passions. Also, you mentioned something earlier, and I would love for GMC to have conversations about this because I think it's great. But back to the um, so I've always saw that balance. Well, wait, let me make sure I heard you right, because what I hear you saying is you received this vision of yourself serving in cross-cultural appointments that your passion, your call is not necessarily, hey, I'm here to build up the black church. It's more, I'm here to build up the church uh, in a post-racial future. Am I right? Yes. Okay. Correct. Yes. Okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure, I I feel like you and I are part of the same project there, but uh, I'm just, I I, I come from a different social location. So, (laughs) and and then also before you go forward, uh, Western North Carolina Conference, what percentage of it was uh, black churches? Hmm. I don't know the accurate percentage. We had like were I there a lot saw, or just a few? We had a lot. Okay. We, and we and and they were very healthy okay. uh, when I was growing up and even in my earlier years of ministry. They started to take a turn, most of them. Uh, I would say probably about 10 years ago or so, 10 to 12 years ago, where uh there's a decline that began to take place. Some had to go from full-time to part-time. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in the district that I was in, we had many, uh, black clergy full-time, uh, elders that were needing full-time appointments, mm-hmm. but 
we didn't have black churches that were full time. So what I did in the Catawba Valley District was I supplemented salaries. And then we had what was called Vitality Associates. So I met with the, I got with our Vitality Associate and the leadership of the church to help them to build up to a place where they can eventually uh, have a, for, be able to take a full-time pastor with the full pay. Mm-hmm. So each year we would decrease the salary and they would pick it up. So we helped to revitalize a lot of those churches that were slowly declining. Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. so, so the conference was not hostile. The, the, there, there were left, right, center, but there was the battle lines hadn't been drawn. There was there was happy collaboration until the temperature got turned up enough, and now things are what they are. Um, you did write on your Facebook, and I got your permission to bring this up beforehand. Yes, but um, part of what you and many are healing from in the GMC is when things got overtly dysfunctional and nasty in in the UMC. So I, I'm, I'm going to read this post because I think you did a really good job summing it up. My story mm-hmm. began in June 2019. Um, at our annual conference, the traditionalists in Western North Carolina was lifting my name as a possible Episcopal candidate. There was a group of colleagues I'd known throughout my entire ministry. I've always been a traditionalist in my theology. They, must, they have always been more progressive, but for me, friendship is not based on how one thinks, but on trust and respect. Mm-hmm. But these individuals falsely accused me of informing my district how to vote in the election of delegates to the general conference. I was serving as a, a district superintendent. At first, I could not believe that they did not come directly to me, but went behind my back to falsely accuse me. Several days later, I received an email from one of the clergy with an accusation. That accusation. My response was, hey, Matthew 18 says come one-on-one. Why didn't you come directly to me? I could have told you that this is a false accusation. And even when it was proven false, and ask any clergy in my district at the time, they would have told you they received nothing from me. I never received an apology. After that event, it continued to escalate. I received harassing emails and phone calls. I met with an attorney who said, Angela, this is a a clear case of harassment and discrimination. Words cannot capture the damage this did to my soul. I, too felt the depression, anger, and bitterness. And friends, my depression was deep and real. So I took time away on spiritual renewal leave for healing. God had to work with me through bitterness and anger that was harming my soul. I'm now in a better place. My trust is my trust is not fully there, but I do have forgiveness in my heart. Um, I, I think I'll, I'll publish um, just a scan of this post. It goes on a little bit longer about healing, and we'll talk about healing in, in this conversation. But for, for viewers or listeners who are spending their time with us, you're a person who knows about the deep—it's uh, not just a systemic dysfunction in the United Methodist Church, but it, it resulted in great interpersonal harm and nastiness, and it, it took people that had been colleagues and had had mutual respect and obliterated all of that whenever um, the time came to figure out in 2019 which way we're going to go. and. Yeah the people on the left did not get their way. All bets, I mean, all of the previous rules were thrown out the window and friends became enemies. And that really came as a shock to a lot of people on the right who had participated in this notion for decades that, hey, we can disagree and have mutual respect. The One of the lessons that I've wanted to make sure that people coming into the GMC have learned is that um, far left liberalism, leftism does not honor 
friendship, uh, not like this. They they honor being on the right side of history. They have determined what that looks like, and people are a means to an end to making that happen. And and that's something that I I think everybody saw in the United Methodist Church. But it's so ugly that we just go, no, we can't talk about that. We can't we can't acknowledge that. But and we'll we'll come back around to to what lessons need to be learned. To my understanding is if we don't learn the lessons rightly and say out yeah. loud what we've learned, then we are much more likely to replicate those mistakes that got made. That that mistake being trusting that friendship was more important than um, ideological loyalty. So um, one more piece of your puzzle coming into this that I've been curious about is. I know how Keith Boyette got in his position. I know how Walter Fenton got in his position. I, I know how most of the the people at the top leading this thing got to where they are. I don't know how you got to from where you were to yeah. to get in the position you're at right now. What's the connecting tissue? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, and, and I do want to say one one thing mm -hmm. with Bishop Carter uh, before I answer that question. When I was on the board of ordained ministry, uh, and I chaired the call and discipline committee on the board of ordained ministry, Bishop Carter was on the board of ordained ministry as well. We used to carpool together mm. <laughs> back and forth to the meetings. Oh wow! Um, and yes, and and he has he was always um, a supporter. And there were times I preached at his church, Providence Methodist. When my mom died last year, he sent uh, a sympathy card, and he hand wrote. It was a very nice message in there. Um, I know a lot of things that he has done, but I, I can say that there, that respect is, he has still demonstrated that towards me. Bishop Leland was the bishop I was under when I was on the cabinet, when a lot of the, the things that happened. Once I left, Bishop Carter came, uh, I think it was the year after I left, uh, the UMC. Mm -hmm. I did want to say that, but, and so speaking of that, when I, when I did leave, it's when everything had escalated to a point uh, to fill in that gap from the letter that you read at the 2019 annual conference, and then going forward, leading into 2020. Mm. Uh, I mentioned to you earlier, God works with part of the, one of the ways that he worked with me is through visions. After that annual conference, and and even the progressive pastors in my district said we didn't receive anything from her. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, mm -hmm. but it was a way to shut down what the traditionalists were trying to do, which was to lift my name as an Episcopal candidate because the progressives had a name they wanted to lift. Mm -hmm. So they were doing everything they can because it would have been a chargeable offense if, if on the cabinet if someone told their district how to vote. Yeah. So they were doing everything yeah. they can. To, to shut that down. But going into the, the fall uh, of that year, when I left that annual conference, I knew in my spirit that was my last annual conference. I would not be back. Sure. Yeah. I didn't know what was going to unfold, but I knew in my spirit that was the last. Mm -hmm. Going into the fall of that year, God showed me two visions in a dream. And then in January, a third, and each one came to fruition. That's when you know it's of God. Mm -hmm. The first one was of the bishop. And I when they when the traditionalists wanted to lift my name as an Episcopal candidate, since I was on the cabinet, the, I said, I cannot answer you until I first speak to. So I tried to pro follow every proper protocol. I mm -hmm. said, I first need to speak to Bishop Leland. 
to make sure that this is okay if a caucus group is going to lift my name up. Mm -hmm. So he and I met over breakfast one morning. He said, absolutely. I was wondering when somebody was going to pick you up and, mm -hmm. and uh, as an Episcopal candidate. So he gave the stamp of approval. But deep in my spirit, I was very uncomfortable going into the annual conference with this. I, I ended up saying yes to the Evangelical Association here at Western North Carolina Conference, but I was still disturbed. And that's when everything unfolded at the 2019. I even had one person, one of the ones who was fighting against me say, well, you were on the cabinet. You should have not had your name on that list to be lifted up. And I reminded that person, I said, our assistant to the bishop was on the progressive list. Her name was lifted by the progressives. Our conference secretary was on the progressive list. Another district superintendent, two district superintendents on the cabinet name was on the progressive list. That's so, so silly. Exactly. So I said, why was it a problem with my name? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that so that was the and first the answer, thing. The answer is, and you already know this. You remember Larry Elder ran for governor of California, but yes. because he's conservative, they called him the black face of white supremacy. Similarly, yes. you're a black lady and oh, man, would they love to have a black lady, but you didn't have the right beliefs. So you might as well have been a white supremacist, exactly. you know, so. They the they say they want diversity, but they they don't want diversity of opinion or theology. They just want the same opinion with a different face and body. Yes. So that's they yes. they summon special hatred for people like you mm -hmm. who don't toe that line and who say no 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 <laughs> I don't I don't care about that stuff the way that you do. So it's it's yes. really weird. You would think that they would feel more guilt for mm -hmm. uh, behaving in the ways that they did to derail mm -hmm. someone like you, but I think they actually take more joy in shutting down someone like you than someone who perhaps looks like me and has my history and theology. Because uh, exactly. you should know better, Angela, than to to have those views. Um, so yeah, that's and the I've times we're living that. in. I've been told that. Mm -hmm. I bet you have. <laughs> yeah, I yes. interviewed Mal Herr, um, who's a, a Hmong clergy in, in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. who was told mm -hmm. that she... Um, she had been, oh, heck, what was the phrase? It, pretty much uh, brainwashed by white uh, colonialism. Um, mm -hmm. uh, that her mm -hmm. mind had been colonized. Mm -hmm. I think that's what they said. Wow. I just think wow. it takes yeah. it takes real uh, idiocy to say that to uh, uh, the fact that white people will say that to people who are not white <laughs> is just so crazy to me. So oh, anyway, and I was thinking that. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right, man. That's bananas. But yeah, that's yeah. that's I, I'm I'm 100 certain that's what what was behind justifying the action that took place against you in Western North Carolina. It's not on the same level, but what I reported on last week was they had a couple legacy churches they really wanted to hold on to. And so mm -hmm. they started a campaign of creating a stink around one of them in particular, focused on lies and misrepresentations, but yes. that, that doesn't matter to them. What matters is, you know, the ends justify the means. Uh, exactly. But they still, I, as you acknowledge that Carter, is is a really decent guy and did uh, show kindness that is is above and beyond what is expected or required. We should also acknowledge Western North Carolina did make the right decision, even if three hundred some voted ungraciously. the The right side prevailed, and so it, it would be wrong to to act as though this is well. Yeah, in your case, all it took was a vocal minority to throw the whole things off. But whenever it comes yeah. down to just the vote, did they end up voting on you? No, that okay. it was a, and this is the first time ever in history of Western North Carolina that 
it was not only a clean slate of progressives that were voted on in the delegation. There was not one traditionalist that ended up on the delegation, but also with clergy. Laity always had a good way of getting their votes done. And within the first or second day, laity, we were always at the the ninth hour just trying to get everything in on that Saturday night. This was the first time by the second day they had every slate filled. Mm. And it was just, I did find out later that there were some other um, people on the cabinet that were putting delegates on that because you have to have the out-large delegates. So they were very intentional to make sure that the out-large delegates were progressive. So I thought that was interesting too. The things that, that I was accused of that I didn't do was actually what some of the others were actually doing. So that was also interesting. Yeah. I run into that yeah. all the time on this. Uh, James Lindsay has termed that the iron law of woke projection. They accuse you of doing mm. what they themselves are doing. So Yes. Yeah, we could we could go on this train for much longer, I'm sure. But OK, yeah, so how yeah. did that connect you to the GMC so, leadership? Yeah. So going into the, the end of 2019 into 2020 uh, with those three visions that I had in each one of those visions, what God showed me was the the attacks are going to increase. This is that was not the end of it. It is going to increase mm -hmm. the first vision it was revealed that this is exactly what is going to be said. Bishop Leland is going to come to you. This is what he's going to say. And that actually happened. In the second vision, it was revealed who was operating behind it. And that came to fruition. To the, the person that was actually behind this in Bishop Leland's ear, kind of navigating everything, mm -hmm. that came to fruition. That was revealed. And then in January of 2020, it was shown that this is going to be the climax of what's going to happen. Mm. And of course, that came to fruition mm. at what happened. So I got to the place that I said, we were in cabinet meeting. This was before the shutdown. We were out of town meeting, working on appointments right before COVID and the lockdown and everything. We actually had to stop that meeting early because they were telling everybody you need to, you know, get back in and so forth. But I went to Bishop Leland and said, I'm coming off the cabinet. Mm. I thought if I go back into a local church, I will be forgotten. Everything will be okay. Well, it wasn't. Yeah, you I got wrong. That's not how it works. Sorry. Go on. Exactly. Tell us yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It got worse, actually. Uh. And, and finally, I just took, I, that's when I applied for sabbatical and I was granted that. And so while I was on that sabbatical, I knew I could not continue in the UMC and I got away, spent time in prayer. And when I read that scripture, if you are uh, teaching any other gospel, you stand accursed. Mm. I knew I have to leave the UMC. I did not know what that next step was going to look like. <laughs> I had mm. nothing lined up. This position did, uh, there, there was, uh, it was announced that they were going to be hiring somebody for this position. Mm -hmm. And I had met the national WCA uh, leadership because at the time it was under WCA, the denomination wasn't launched yet. I chaired a task team on race and equality to work on a policy for the w for the what will be the new denomination. Mm -hmm. So I was in Alabama when I presented our task team work to them. So I had an opportunity to sit and meet a lot of the people on okay. the national WCA yeah. council. And you um, made an impression for obvious reasons, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I hope so. I don't know, but I, and so people who they here in uh, Western North Carolina, they said, well, just put your name in and, mm -hmm. and 
um, see what happens. I sent my resume off and they narrowed it down to four people. I was one of the ones they interviewed. And then Keith called me up and said, are you ready to go to work? And so that's how I ended up uh, in this position and then transferred over when the GMC launched. And so you rightly sit in a position where you're highly visible and highly influential. You you have a, you know, I, I was scrolling down your Facebook timeline this morning and uh, it's just booking after booking of going and encouraging people here and then going uh, and encouraging. And that's all for good reason. It doesn't, a lot of what you're doing doesn't directly overlap with your job description necessarily because really your job description is sit in front of a computer and scrutinize <laughs> all of the people that are applying to uh, become GMC clergy, uh, which we need someone solid in that position. Uh, gatekeepers are absolutely essential. If we don't have quality clergy coming in, uh, you might as well just kiss the dream of the GMC goodbye. So on behalf of everybody, thank you for filling that role. And I know it's it's not always filling to spend hours and hours over this minutia of uh, what, what additional educational requirements need to be met for this candidate. And, you know, everybody is different and everybody has their own desires that you operate around them. And I personally know of different uh, times where you have taken time personally to talk to people on the phone to help them. It's just, you have to have people do this. It is not a fun job. It is not even a spiritually fulfilling job a lot of the time until you get to see the fruit of your labors. Um, so I, a lot of people have already talked to you about that and interviewed you about that and what that's about. And so um, um, there's a, there's a, where did I hear you talk about it on a podcast? There is a podcast associated with the WCA. Uh, I was mm. listening to it while doing yard work about six Maybe months Sterling ago. Allen? Say that again. Sterling, was it Sterling Allen? I don't think so, um, but I did see that Sterling yeah. also interviewed you. I never watched that one. So anyway, a lot of people have, have covered those bases with you. Um, I just mm. looked at the time. I can't believe we've already been talking as long as we have. So oh, wow. <laughs> I, know, I know what I want to do. I know how I want to weave this together. Um, as should be obvious to anyone who's already listened to you, you are very strong in the signs and wonders, spiritual worldview of mm. uh, the Bible, of, of the Christian faith. This is, is a particular gifting of yours, which you are wanting to offer to the church broadly, and which it seems to me that you're gifted to do. But secondly, you uh, work with LEOs um, in your capacity, uh, primarily law enforcement, back the mm -hmm. blue, um, you're a chaplain. You've counseled a lot of guys through trauma. Um, I was a first responder for two years, one or two years here as a, a volunteer fire to, uh, firefighter. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that time, there were traumatic things that happened. You see things on the front line of emergencies. Um, yeah. And, you know, faith deals with not just the real stuff, the realest stuff, uh, mm -hmm. life and death, salvation, damnation. We we often try and domesticate and uh uh, clean up things in life, but the the faith of Jesus Christ isn't one of those things that you can domesticate, and it has yes. everything to do with trauma and healing. Mm -hmm. I wanted to mm -hmm. um, just tell you about this book that I read, The End of Trauma, by a guy who studies trauma, mm -hmm. George A. Bonanno, um, and he stops just short of saying what I've suspected, but he talks mm -hmm. uh, about uh, longitudinal studies that look at how people process trauma around 9-11, or the Boston yeah. Marathon bombing. And one of the things that we notice is that people generally, not without exception, but generally are quite resilient and can mm -hmm. heal whenever they are not interfered with by um, a society that is uh, obsessed with safety, safetyism. 
uh, one of the things we know is that people are real traumatized uh, when they watch TV about it, media. People that were at the bombing in Boston were not as traumatized as people who just watched the news about it. Um, So trauma is a weird, interesting thing. Uh, Trauma also is is something that if you don't deal with it, it can really come back in a nasty way. And so um, I I wanted to just let you speak for at least 10 minutes and just um, share what you think about how it is that, I mean, the Global Methodist Church is made up almost entirely of people who got chewed up and spat out by, well, they didn't get spat out. They just got chewed up and then had to fight their way out of the United Methodist Church. And then we have a spiritual reality that very much has to do with healing, very much has to do with visions and dreams and um, um, the Spirit pouring into us. How, you know, you're you're not queen of the GMC. I'm not king. We're just two people in the GMC uh, talking about what we hope it can be. We both yes. hope that the GMC is not acting out of trauma from the UMC. We want it to be healed. What does that look yeah. like practically as we yeah. process what we've been through? What does that look like spiritually as mm-hmm. we uh, are led by people like you who who have can teach us to walk in the Spirit and be healed? So go whatever direction mm-hmm. you want to go with that, and uh, I'm very excited to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. And and usually when I go around and, and preach at different places, I always try to touch on this mm-hmm. um, because I think it's one of the um, maybe one of the forgotten uh, avenues that we need to be looking at or neglected for right not forgotten, but neglected for right now right. is I, I have this thing that I do with my officers and I call it the the soda pop, the soda can <laughs> um, type ministry. And so whenever they come in my office, uh, I have an office at the police department. So whenever they come in, they say, they call me chap. They said, okay, chap, soda can Tom. And what I do when I, (laughs) I did this with them many years ago, but I I had a soda bottle. And when I went in to talk and in roll call, I was shaking it up as I was talking. And so in the middle of my talking, I stopped and one of the officers, I said, officer, so-and-so, open that, I'm thirsty. And immediately he pushed back and said, no. And I I looked, I said, you're going to let me die of thirst up here? Open it for me. And he said, no. I said, why? He said, because it's going to go everywhere. I said, stop. Say that again. He said, you just shook it up and all that on the inside. And once I open, it's going to go. I said, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then I began to talk about when trauma gets trapped in our body. Mm-hmm. That's what happens for law enforcement. And, and they live in this hypervigilance because they go from scene to scene. And even when they're not going from scene to scene, but they're in their uh, cruiser, they're still on this heightened awareness, just scanning and watching, waiting for that next call to come in, not knowing what that call is going to be. Even a simple traffic stop is not simple. Because right. you never know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. So, and when you're looking at twelve-hour shifts, they they are on more than they're off with the shifts because mm-hmm. they're they're doing twelve hours back to back to back, constantly living in that state, mm-hmm. and and all of that is building up in their body. So even when they're off, they're not off. When they go home, it's not easy to turn that off because you need so many hours for your body to come for that. What I call that parasympathetic nervous system to start taking over that can help calm you down. Yeah, they the sympathetic the nervous system is the fight or flight, hypervigilant, ready to go into action at any time. You're on, on, yeah. on, and then you can't just instantly switch off. It, it takes, exactly. okay, I hear you. 
Exactly. And so what I it did end up doing with that soda bottle, and I used a bottle instead of a can because it's easier to demonstrate, is if you unscrew the cap just a little bit at a time, mm-hmm. you can actually begin to take it all off without it fizzling everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then I, that led me into talking about healthy ways that we can help to deal with that trauma that we've been holding on the inside. Now, why did I bring all that up? Because as we, as we saw people transferring over and, and you stated it, you know, many of us, if not all of us were just chewed up. Uh, And as we started to see people transferring over, I want to go back even before that, not only what we went through trying to get out of a, a denomination, but what happened right before that COVID. So you're looking at one crisis after another, but and and probably some was going through their own individual crisis even before COVID. There was a lot of things that people were walking through, whether it was in their personal life, oh, man. the life of the church. Oh and, man, yes, so, yeah, yeah, and and where I saw it uh, with the work that I'm doing, this is how I saw the symptoms coming out was you could tell that there was a lot of stuff built up mm-hmm. and I don't, at the time it was difficult to go through, but looking back now that I've, I'm still walking through my own healing and knowing what being able to spot what other people were coming through, but there were many that were not polite. I would just say it that yeah. way. <laughs> what, you know, it, and it was difficult because I, I'm so grateful for provisional conferences and districts now that, and I had one person in one provisional district call yesterday and we were, she was, I was helping her through an application and she said, you know, as hard as it is for me here in this provisional area and the work that I'm doing, mm-hmm. I have helped. I don't know how you as one person did this for so many months when we first launched. Mm-hmm. All of that was just me sitting behind a laptop trying to respond to, by hand. It wasn't even, we didn't have an online system yet. So by hand, every single application, reading through every transcript, reading every background check, something was always left off the application. I had to reach back out to the, Mm. but yeah, it was, and I kept trying to tell people, please be patient. I'm trying to work as best. And it was, it was brutal. Some of the things that I had, some of the emails were just, nope. It was like, I'm like, why can't these people understand? So looking back now, I know what it was. And every time I tried to, you know, lift it up and I would hear people say, oh, it's just anxiety. Hey, wait, I I think what I just heard you say is that a lot of people in your correspondence with them were less than polite, were, were not appreciative. And these were GMC people. And one could Correct. easily go, I don't know if I want to join this group if it's full of a bunch of rude people. But the connection you're drawing, I think, is these are people who got chewed up just like I did, and they yes. haven't worked through it. And so, yeah, it's yeah. it's going to be exploding on people and getting on other people around them until it's dealt with. Yeah, that was the soda. Ca- I mean, it was okay. fizzling out everywhere. Okay, okay. And, and we can't brush that away just by saying, well, they're just filled with anxiety. We can't brush that away like that. We have to get to that deep place because what's going to happen if we don't, we're going to have triggers. Okay. When people have gone through a traumatic situation, let me give you an example of what I mean by, for those who may not know what I'm talking about when I say trigger. Back in the end of September, I was in a wreck. Somebody, I was at a red light. Someone crashed into the back of me. That was the first time ever I was in a wreck. It totaled my car. Mm. And it was now I'm noticing when I drive, 
when I was coming back from Georgia in October, when we had our meeting there and I was, I was stopped on the highway on the exit because it was a lot of traffic. And I looked in my rearview mirror and there was a car barreling. Mm. He didn't look like he was going to stop trigger. My mind immediately went back to September when yeah. that car hit me and I froze. Mm. Fight or flight or freeze. I'm one that I freeze and okay. I froze. I tensed up. That's a trigger. Mm. So if we don't help to get to that place of deep, the where the wounds are and that deep hurt, we're going to have a lot of triggers that come forth. And so I, my prayer and goal is what can we do to help people get to that place of healing mm -hmm. so our denomination can be healthy and whole? So we in turn can go out and help others, not just in our churches, but in the world yeah. to, yes. to get to that place of yeah, healing. Yeah, if we can't if we can't be healed of our hurt, what exactly yeah. do we imagine we're offering people? We can say we're offering Jesus, but Jesus is the master physician. You know, he's he's yeah. he's the healer. So if we're not healed, what exactly are we offering, you know? And yeah. uh, granted, we have to be gracious. You know, some healing takes a long period of time. Some of it isn't experienced till the coming kingdom. But if we don't even give healing a chance, like if we don't even try and process it, if we just try and yeah. get past it and just move on and then, uh, you know, one of the things I've been so discouraged by seeing in, in the United Methodist Church, you'd see so much bad behavior and then people say, mm -hmm. well, they're just, they're very emotional. It's like, well, no crap. But I mean, we're supposed to be <laughs> yeah. not just adults, we're supposed to be Christians. We're supposed to be peacemakers. Why all of a sudden are we making room for misbehavior yeah. just because we have strong feelings, just because we're we're upset and emotional. That is not a license to mistreat other people, but that's what yeah. we're making room for in the GMC if we don't expect people to name what they've been through, to to give that to Christ Jesus and let him take away that trauma, uh, mm -hmm. uh, to, to restore us to who we were before we experienced such a thing. Mm -hmm. it, it's like this, when I talk about this with people, it's like I'm speaking Martian sometimes, like me too. <laughs> the the only frame of reference yeah. so many people have is if I speak about negative things, then I'm failing. And not only that, it's almost like I'm acknowledging that God failed or something. And it's not a failure on God's part for us to go through bad things. You know, I, I think it betrays some kind of spiritual prosperity gospel. Like if God's with us, we're mm -hmm. not going to go through hard stuff. We went through hard stuff, so God wasn't with us. And then I also think that's kind of what's behind. And maybe we can steer it towards the spiritual stuff. But I see almost this like um, emphatic, like the spirit's with us now. Oh, he wasn't with us before, but oh, he's with us now, and and we're gonna see all kinds of growth and success now. And and I think yes. what's undergirding that is not entirely rational. I think it is this kind of like, well, he must not have been with us before because he really let us down. We went through a hard time, so now let's let's be happy. Yeah. Let's not talk about that. Let's let's talk about the new stuff, the new hope, and. Um, for people yeah. like me, I, I'm going, I, I don't know if the Holy Spirit is going to operate with people that aren't even going to acknowledge yeah. the darkness. You know, what exactly? Uh, anyway, I, I feel like I, I talked long enough on that, but how, how no. important do you think it is for us to name individually and collectively what we went through and yeah. then um, yeah. expect now global Methodist leadership to be mature and sober and forthright about naming the failures yeah. of the past. Uh, yeah, go ahead and, and do whatever you want yeah. with that. 
No, I, I, you're spot on with everything you just said, because one of the things that I keep hearing is uh, er, when provisional areas have their their worship services and ordination service, what I'm hearing uh, from that is, oh, yay, everything's great now. Mm-hmm. People are the, the worship services are wonderful and uplifting. And, and they are. I've been to yeah. some of them yes. and, and they are. Mm-hmm. But guess what? What about the next day? Mm-hmm. When we go and and when we haven't processed what has happened and what has continued to happen, mm-hmm. um, what about the next day and then the next day and the next exactly. day? Yeah. So again, we we can't just bury it because we we've seen what happened. You know what? If we do that, mm-hmm. in an ideal world, <laughs> if I can share what yeah. what I think would have been great, um, and it's not too late. What would it have looked like if we? And I know there's uh, several things out there. Some people are doing the the bands um, in seminary at Wesley Biblical. Uh, one of my professors he wrote a book on this called the five Dr. Friedman the five Q method, which is similar to the band. One of the things I like about the five Q method it gives you practical application to live into for that that week. Um, but things like that, what would it have looked like if we started with the TLC and the general church staff mandatory to go through this, mm. to be able to name our, all of our stuff? Because that's important. The naming is so important. Yeah. When we want to avoid something, we we don't name it and we try to gloss it over, pretend it's, everything's okay while it's continuing to fester. But when we can actually name what's happening inside of us. So what would that have looked like? And then as we began to uh, raise up the president pro tems and the district uh, leaders, then we helped them to set up these groups, what do you, whatever you want to call it, bands or small uh, places of healing. I'm going to say something real through- weird real quick. I'm yeah. sorry, but it just now occurred to me, and I, I love this thought. Exorcism, you know, of course, is something Jesus and the disciples and Christians mm-hmm. of all ages have done. Um, one of the protocol, I mean, a protocol for exorcism right at the very beginning is getting the demon's name. Because when you have yes. the name over something, that's that's what allows you control over it yeah. and power over it. And so as we're talking about naming the things done wrong in the past, if we want to make this a sort of exorcism, and I think that's entirely appropriate to talk about, then getting the name yeah. of that demon is really essential for eventually casting it out. So if we're not intentionally getting that name, how are we going to cast it out? So, uh, okay, so you were talking about hypothetically, if we could go back in time, it sure would have been good to, to make it mandatory for all people in leadership in the GMC to go through this group uh, healing and accountability process so as to cast out those—I'm using my metaphor yes. now—cast out these yeah. demons that would otherwise plague this new organization. Yeah, yeah, and 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 to continue that process mm-hmm. as once the provisional areas were made, then the president pro tems together as a group, and they sure. in turn could lead their presiding elders, who mm-hmm. lead the the clergy, who leads the leadership within there, and so on and so on, mm-hmm. and it. I mean, like I said, just hypothetical. Yeah. What, no, that's a worthy what thought. Yeah. Well, and yeah. it's not, it's, I mean, I guess it might be too late for a top down approach, but mm-hmm. I, I do think it's worth a, a prolonged attempt to compel people, especially people in positions of leadership, into yes. some form of accountability, discipleship groups where the expectation is. Well, so the larger thing, I think, though, is Angela, it's a cultural thing that it doesn't have racial uh, norms around it, but it does have, um, oh heck, spiritual prosperity gospel overtones Mm. or Mm. 
are we mm. going to be a movement that's all positive or are we going to be a movement that that is more sober? Uh, that's how I would uh, – are we going to be a people that are known for being able to acknowledge the darkness yeah, while also not succumbing to the darkness? I, I, mm-hmm. That's what I mm-hmm. think is the real undergirding fear for so many people is if we acknowledge it, then we've lost. If we acknowledge yeah. it, then we let the devil in. And there's not a reality of the devil's already in. He was here before yeah. you even got here. And That's you right. need to know how to spiritually arm yourself. And so many people don't want to identify as uh, a combatant. They want to identify yeah. as a civilian. And there is no civilian in God's army. Here's and, and you just made me think about this. Here's where I know that if we do not do this, because mm-hmm. so so many clergy right now do not know how to reach out and walk alongside people who are in that dark place. Mm-hmm. Last year, when I went through that, I call it my dark night of the soul. Mm-hmm. You can call it depression, call it whatever. Uh, I had lost my mom a couple of weeks after my mom's funeral. My close friend was killed in a tragic accident. I had to preach his funeral. Then I got COVID and then trying to deal with the applications and the mm-hmm. crazy emails. So I went into a dark night of the soul mm-hmm. and there were some people Gents that walked away from me. They they didn't know, you know, they they reached out and I was just in a really dark place. Mm-hmm. And and eventually they just stopped talking to me. And when I was able, except for a few, and I tell you, my law enforcement officers were right there. So that were. became my church. Yeah. Uh-huh. That became my church. And they began to speak into me yeah. and help me through that time. And looking back now, I'm thinking that's because we don't know how to walk alongside people like that. Right. And we don't want to know how to deal with our own, let alone trying to work, walk alongside others. So we cannot, you, we can't just walk away from people mm-hmm. when they're in that dark place. That's right. So, so yeah, what so you're important. talking about is something that I heard Francis Chan talk about with, you know, he baptized mm-hmm. a gang member into his church, ran into a couple weeks later. And the mm-hmm. gang members said, the church has not given me the intimacy that my gang gave me. And what what's mm-hmm. often exposed is that our, our local churches have been playing church rather than being church, and they yes. don't really know how to do life together. And that's what the class and band meetings are really about, is doing life together. But so much, it's not just our laity, our clergy don't even know how to be intimately exactly. in relationship and walk with people. And if we cannot take care of each other like that, if we can't, if we don't even, the question is not, can we learn to? The question is, do we even want to learn to? Or yes, do we just want a big, a nice big organization with a lot of energy? Because that's not the same mm-hmm. thing. So, yeah. uh, you know, you and me are of the mind, let's stop playing church. Let's be the church. You know, that, let's mm-hmm. let's make it so that anybody in a global Methodist church, when they're going through a dark period, they, they're already in a group of people that are walking yes. with them, that are not going to let them go, that are not going to... And if we're not interested in creating that, I'm of the mind that that's that's core and key to being a Methodist. I would actually say if we're not building that, then we are not authentic Methodists. Yeah. Um, But that's the conversation that's happening right now. I feel Mm -hmm. like you and I have just made a pretty good case for it. So I want to give you the last word for anyone who's been spending time with us on this and Mm -hmm. uh, might not be familiar with all of these concepts and pieces of the biblical worldview that we've introduced. How would you urge them to meditate and reflect on this conversation. What what do you think are the final closing things that are important to say here? Yeah, I think um, to if we can help people, whoever's watching this and they're and they're looking at this thing and seeing themselves in this, mm-hmm. um, 
to find, you can call me or whomever, but to find someone to say, what can I do to begin those next steps? I think it's so important. And even, and don't be afraid if you say, I've been working on this for some time and I feel like I keep falling back just this week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've been doing this a long time with law enforcement. Just this week on Monday, there's somebody who I've been working with, um, with the database and I just, it a, a flurry came up in me and, and I didn't lash out at the person, but I, I, I said, call me right now, da, 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 da. And after I left that message, I stepped back and said, why did I just leave that? I had to do a Mm self-assessment. And why? Because I had a trigger. Mm -hmm. It was an email that I got from this person and it sent a trigger in me from something from my past with all that I went through, uh, leaving the UMC, coming into the GMC. And when, when the person called me, the first thing I did was apologize. I said, this just sent me back to a place. I took it out on you, but it's not about you. It's really about me. And we mm-hmm. had a great conversation. <laughs> Good. And so, so don't be afraid when when you're thinking, oh, I thought I was making progress, and I, it, it happens. Mm-hmm. It happens because we're going to have those triggers. But let's not continue to keep our head in the sand as if everything is 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 going to be okay. But let us take those steps to learn what can we do about this, and how can we help each other and ourselves. Is there a single resource? Uh, a book uh, or a website that you think it would be just really good for people to dip into if they're interested in learning about spiritual healing? Mm, wow. I have so many books on that. Um, I can't think of one right off the how top about, of my head. Yeah. How about uh, we, we'll have a day or so between when we yeah. co- close off and when I publish. How about folks, if you're interested in... Um, learning more about this, reading more and reflecting on this, check the show notes, whether you're listening to the podcast or watching somewhere else. And I will put links to whatever resources that Reverend Pleasance uh, recommends, because I I do think that this is something, if I hadn't encountered this before, I would want to know more. And neither Mm -hmm. you nor I have published much on this, so we've got to be able to connect people. So we'll we'll connect you in the show notes. Um, Angela, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. I I doubt this is going to be the only time we publicly talk. Uh, you you clearly have many giftings to offer, and thank you for offering what you have to the GMC. And uh, may the Global Methodist Church continue to be a place where uh, we can have these conversations in the open about what we need to be, and um, l- let's be optimistic about the GMC being and doing so much more than what we were able to do before. So, um, friends, thank you so much for joining me and Angela. Uh, pray for her. She's going to continue to be in, in uh, an influential place in the Global Methodist Church for some time. I just saw that there's going to be a group convened where you and uh, uh, Reverend Henners and uh, Bishop Jones and like eight other people are going to be talking yes. about the future of Methodism, the nature of Methodism. So um, yeah. we we need to pray for your wisdom and and forbearance with the rest of us who sometimes don't get it. We need your patient leadership. So um, God bless you and, and thank you for spending time with me. Um, friends, if you want to follow up with Angela, don't do it. She's really busy. She, <laughs> she doesn't have time, but, um, have these conversations with the people in your church and, uh, figure out how you want to be. And uh, if this has been a blessing to you, just want to thank you for spending time with us. Uh, feel free to, to sign up for Plain Spoken at Locals, plainspoken.locals.com. If you want to be a, become a supporter, that really helps me out to, to build this thing out more. I can talk to even more interesting people. Uh, but if you're not in a position to do that, just uh, go over to YouTube or Facebook, wherever you are, like and, and subscribe to that, because I'm going to continue to have a lot more conversations like this. And I, 
I think this is a worthy conversation. So Angela, one more time, thank you so much. Thank you.